If you have your Bibles with you, open them to look at First Peter. First Peter chapter three. First Peter chapter three. As you open, um, just allow me to say once again what a joy it is to be here. This is kind of a home away from home for me. I, I don't even know how many times it's been now that I've been here to Praise Mill, and um, I look forward to it every time, if for no other reason than to stand in the pulpit where I will be reminded to preach the word. I love that. Every time I go up here, right, that right here it says, preach the word. That's what we're about. That's what Praise Mill is about. Um, and that's why I'm here this morning. Amen. In many ways, um, if, if you cut me, I bleed apologetics. That's just kind of what I do. It's the way I think. It's the way I'm, I'm put together. Um, but what I've learned over the years is that many people assume they understand what that means. Um, when they don't, when we think about apologetics, a lot of Christians are um, intimidated by the idea of apologetics uh, because we feel like, you know, apologetics is about knowing everything about everything all the time. And so we say, no, I, I can't do apologetics because I don't know everything about everything all the time. Um, in fact, I don't know a lot about anything most of the time, right? Um, so we can't do apologetics. Um, and that's not true. Uh, some people feel like apologetics, you know, that's for the, 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 the Green Beret, Navy SEAL, right, Marine Force recon Christians. Only those special forces Christians get to go and do the apologetic stuff. And so since that's not me, obviously I'm not supposed to be involved in that apologetic stuff. Again, not true. Um, some people are offended by the idea of apologetics. Because we've gotten this idea, um, mostly from some apologists, that um, you know, in order to do apologetics, you have to be a bit of a jerk. You have to be a snob, a know-it-all. You have to be arrogant and condescending. And so, you know, since we're not arrogant, condescending know-it-alls, we feel like, well, maybe I'm not <coughs> called to apologetics. Um, no, that, that's not. That's not what apologetics is all about. Um, and the fact that we think that is one of the reasons that most of the people who talk to me about eagerly wanting to be apologists are uh, teenage boys. I mean, they are. They love to argue. They love the sound of their own voice. Right? Arrogant, condescending. They're like, I found my calling. Right? Um, but no, it's, it's, it's not that. It's not that at all. And in an era like the one that we find ourselves in today, um, many see apologetics really as a way for our side to gain the upper hand. We look at what's happening around us in the culture, and we feel like we need to, we need to win back the culture, right? We hear that a lot, right? 
We need to win back the culture. Um, and oftentimes it's like we need to win back the culture by doing what the culture did to win, right? So we look at what the culture did to win and we say, look, look at the things that they did. If we could just get ourselves organized like they've gotten themselves organized, then we could. Well, first of all, they're not organized. Amen, somebody. They're not having secret meetings out there to do the craziness that they do. They're just doing craziness. And the prince of the power of the air is doing the organizing. Amen, somebody, right? But, but, but the other thing is, like, like, we're not called to do things the way that they do things. Amen? The, the, the way we do things is, is different. And one of the ways that we need to be engaging right now is in and with and through apologetics, but apologetics understood rightly. So what I want to do, it'll be a little bit unorthodox today, and I know it's me, right? Me doing something unorthodox, just imagine that. Um, but the, the passage that we're most familiar with is here in Second Peter 3, beginning there at verse 13. I don't want to concentrate there. I want to concentrate on the passage that comes immediately before it, okay? But let's, let's look at 1 Peter 3, 13 to 17. What did I say? I said second. I've been saying second. Oh, yeah, okay. 1 Peter 3. It happens. It ha okay, so yesterday, yesterday I did an event somewhere else where I was in second Peter. So that's why y'all looking at me crazy. Cause I'm still talking about second Peter. Um, I did that, but thank you for that. I, I remember at our church in Houston. Um, I did something similar to that. We were going, we had, we had finished a series in, um, I, I don't know some, we had finished a series of new Testament, we'd gone to an old Testament book. And for the whole sermon, I was saying Paul for the whole sermon. Right. And Paul's like nowhere in the Old Testament, for those of you who don't know. Right. And it wasn't until I was done that one of my fellow elders told me that I was doing that the whole time. So thank you for letting me know and not just going to social media saying, I don't know which book this. Because people do that. Right. All right. First Peter. Chapter three. And this is where we get the word, uh, actually, uh, apologetics from. Apologetics is a, is a, it's a transliteration of a Greek word. Sometimes we translate a Greek word, right? This word means this. But sometimes we just transliterate. And we don't translate it. We just take the word diakonos, right? We don't translate that. We don't say that that's one who serves. or We just say deacon, um, apostolos, right? Apostle. We just say apostle. We don't say one who sent. That would be the translation. We just say apostle. Apologetics, same thing. Apologia is a, a reasoned response. That's what the word means. But we don't translate the word. We just transliterate it and we just bring it over into English. Um, and sometimes that's problematic because apologetics sounds like you're apologizing for something. Amen. Um, I, I, yeah, there's a, anyway, I won't, but it, we're not apologizing for anything. 
we're giving a, a reasoned response. That, that's what this means. That's what it refers to. But look at 1 Peter 3, beginning at verse 13. And I want us to look here so that I can give you the working definition. Because I find that it's helpful when we have a working definition. We think all of these things about apologetics and it's intimidating or it's offensive or whatever. Um, but follow me here. Verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone. And that word, that make a defense, that's, that's apologia. To make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Everything around that verse is incredibly important, and we're going to come back to that. I want you to get that. But if you just read verse 15, right? In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, that you get a definition of apologetics. And here's, here's a working definition. Apologetics is knowing what you believe, knowing why you believe it, and being able to communicate that effectively to others. Let me say it again. It's knowing what you believe. It's not knowing everything about everything all the time. It's knowing what you believe. Apologetics is knowing what you believe. You don't, know, you don't have to know what every other religion believes. You don't have to know what every cult believes. You don't have to know what every Christian believes. You need to know what you believe. And why you believe it. And, and because is not an acceptable answer. You need to know why you believe it. What do you believe and why do you believe it? And then, finally, because that's useless if you can't communicate it. Amen? It's useless if you can't communicate it. So you must be able to communicate that to others, and you have to be able to communicate it effectively. Effectively. I remember one of my, my college professors was an economics professor and incredibly well-known and renowned and, and, and um, just all of this stuff. And so I'm like, this is cool, man, being able to learn, you know, from, from somebody of this caliber. And it was horrible. It was so hard to understand him, his books, yes. but him. So, so what good is it? It was almost no good to go to class. Better to just go and get the book and not listen to what he was saying at all. So you must know what you believe. You must know why you believe it. And you must be able to communicate that to others and do so effectively. And I would also add winsomely. Winsomely. Okay? So there's our working definition. Now... Let's back up and look at the paragraph before it. 
because we often don't pay attention to the paragraph before it. Beginning there at verse 8. And there are a number of things that we discover from that paragraph just before. The first thing that we discover is the identity of an apologist. The identity of the apologist. And he says, finally, all of you. Finally, all of you. Or in the Texas version, I know we have a bunch of versions of the Bible and all this, and I know we got the the new Legacy Standard Bible, and the Legacy Standard Bible is fine, but 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 the Legacy Standard Bible, there's there's one glaring weakness, and it's the same glaring weakness, you know, that 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 all of the translations have, and so I'm just want to say here publicly, we need to come up with a Texas version. A Texas update of the Legacy Standard Bible, so people can understand the difference, you know, but, but, but between the singular and the plural. Second person singular, singular, second person plural. Second person singular, you. Most translations, right? Even even the second person plural, they still say you, and you got to look at the context to know. If it's singular or plural, you do a Texas update and it becomes clear to everybody. Second person singular, you. Second person plural, y'all. <laughs> I don't know why they won't listen to me on this one. But this one would actually read finally all y'all. <laughs> why is that significant? Because remember what I said earlier? We think apologetics is only for certain Christians. Apologetics is only for certain people. Apologetics is only people with a certain gift, or my favorite, right, is the ones who say, yeah, brother, that's you. I'm, I'm glad you're out there, you're doing that because you have that anointing, right? You have that apologetics anointing. No, this is for all y'all. Finally, all y'all. Now, in order to grasp that, we got to go back and look at where he begins this section, begins this train of thought. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2, because I almost did it again. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2 and look beginning at verse 9. I, I, I want to just sort of orient you to what Peter's doing here so we can grasp this. Verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Then look at what he says. In verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Who's that? That's, that's all y'all, right? He's, he's still plural here, but then he goes in verse 18. Slaves, be subject to your masters. Now he's not talking about everybody, but particularly people who are slaves. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Again, that's not everyone, but that's people who happen to be wives. 
Chapter 3, verse 7, likewise, husbands. That's not everyone, but that's specifically the husbands. So he's making a statement there at the beginning, and then he's talking to particular groups of people about how they apply this statement. And we'll get to that statement in a moment. He's talking to particular groups of people about how they apply this teaching. And then in verse 8, he says, finally, all y'all to know that we've gone from the specific to the general again. That what he's saying here is for everyone who names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go with me to the book of Jude. Don't ask what chapter. Jude starts off with a call to apologetics. In verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for the faith. And this is another one that in the original language really gives you a picture. He... The word picture that he uses here is one of wrestling, hand-to-hand combat, contend for the faith, fight for the faith. That's what he's saying here. He's calling us to apologetics. The next verse makes that clear because people are perverting the gospel. But to whom is he speaking? Go back to verse 1. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and Brother of James, to those who are called. Amen. Amen. Beloved in God the Father. Amen again. And kept for Jesus Christ. Now, he's referring to the same group of people three different ways, right? This is a... This is a rhetorical tool. He's emphasizing his point. And the point that he's emphasizing here is that whatever he's about to call you to, he's calling everybody who is called. Everybody who is beloved. Everybody who is kept. In other words, all Christians are being called to apologetics. All Christians. And again, when you understand that the definition of apologetics is know what you believe, know why you believe it, and be ready and be able to communicate that effectively to others, it makes sense that every Christian would be called to that. That's why we started with the definition. Because part of our problem is definitional. But that's not our only problem. The identity of the apologist But look here at the mindset of the apologist. 1 Peter 3, 8, again. Finally, all of you. Think about what we said earlier about the the, the, the mindset that you think the apologist has, right? It's this, this, this special forces go crush everybody, you know, mindset. 
Um, I, I've often told the story of um, my first real apologetic encounter as a new believer. Never heard the gospel. Uh, I didn't grow up in church or around Christians, Christianity. Um, I was raised by a single teenage Buddhist mother. Never heard the gospel, so I went to university. And so as a new believer, I had some, some, some teammates of mine who they bought me my first Bible. They mentored me, discipled me. And somebody came to visit me at my apartment. And something was a bit off in the conversation. So at practice the next day, I'm telling my buddies about this person who came and visited and something was just off. You know, they were talking about the Bible, but they weren't talking about it the way we talk about it. And so they asked me, Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses? And I said, how am I supposed to, who are they? And how am I supposed to know they did? They didn't say. And they go, name tag or no name tag? And I said, no name tag. And they looked at each other and they went, the JWs, right? And so I'm like, well, let me in on this, right? And so they told me about Jehovah's Witnesses. They told me, I just went to the library, started devouring information and looking up information. This is before we had, you know, these little things where you just go, hey, Siri, tell me. No, I had to go and look stuff up. And I did. I went and looked stuff up. And the guys came back. I was so ready. So ready. After the encounter, I went back to practice the next day. And I said, they came back. And they were like, oh, really? How'd it go? I said, it was ugly. <laughs> it was ugly. I was so ready. I beat them like tied up goats. I mean, it was just, it, it was, it was, uh, you know, and I'm just going on and on and on. And one of them, Brent Napton, I'll never forget. Brent looks at me and he says, do you think they'll ever come back? I was like, Brent. They ain't never coming back to my apartment. And he said, what a shame. And he walked off. I hated him. Like, for a good 10 minutes. I just, I could not stand him. Because instantly, I understood what he was talking about. Because I was that caricature of an apologist that caricature that makes everybody not want to do apologetics. That's not what we find in the text. Finally, all y'all have unity of mind, sympathy, ouch, brotherly love, ouch, a tender heart, ouch, and a humble mind. I was none of that. I was none of that. But, but that's the mindset of an apologist. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It, it seems almost counterintuitive, doesn't it? That's because we don't understand what apologetics is. By the way, here's a newsflash. Apologetics is defensive, not offensive. Let me say that again. Apologetics is defensive, not offensive. So if we were going to put a sports analogy, apologetics is the way we play defense. Evangelism is the way we play offense. The two go hand in hand, right? 
but apologetics is defense. Right. Always be ready to give an answer. That's not offensive. That's defensive. Always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you. They're on offense. You're on defense. Are you seeing this? Are you seeing this? So that's why we have this attitude. Also, because of the character of the apologist. Look at the character of the apologist. Do not repay evil for evil, for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. That's the character, not evil for evil, not reviling for reviling. It's not a war of words. It's a war of ideas. I'm not at war with an individual. We are not fighting against flesh and blood. Amen? Principalities, powers. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. We are not against individuals. This is not about one-upmanship. Our words must be seasoned with salt. Again, remember what's said here in verse 15. Look at the last part of verse 15. Always make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. With gentleness and respect, having a good consciousness, a good conscience. By the way, gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness, from a biblical perspective, is actually power under control. Gentleness is me wrestling with my two-year-old grandson. I could crush him like a worm. <laughs> but I don't. I control myself so that I take care of him and don't hurt him, don't harm him. I absolutely have the ability to do so. But gentleness is why and how I don't. That's the attitude that we call to have. That's the character that we're called to have. Why is it so important for us to have that character? Again, go back with me. We looked at the beginning of this in verses 9 and 10. Look in verse 11, chapter 2. Look in verse 11 of chapter 2. So we see in verses 9 and 10 that we're a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, we're a holy nation, we're a people for God's own possession. Okay? That's who and what we are. Yet, in verse 11, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So 
look at these two things. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, right? That, that, that sounds, it sounds geopolitical, but, but it's not. It's spiritual and supernatural, right? That's why we're at, wherever we go in the world, we find brothers and sisters. It's an amazing thing. I find, I find that to be especially true when I go someplace where I, I don't speak the language. I go someplace and I'm, I'm looking around and, I, you know, I'm seeing, I can't even read the signs in the airport, right? And then I, I meet brothers and sisters and, you know, they do somebody who speaks English and they're going to interpret for me and that's great, that's wonderful. And I go and I'm at a church and I'm meeting brothers and sisters at the church and I can't understand what they're saying, they can't understand what I'm saying. And the church service starts and they start singing a familiar hymn. And I could probably only make out one word, Jesus. Usually I can make out that, that word, right? And all of a sudden, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that I don't speak their language and they don't speak mine. And then I get up and I'll preach and my interpreter is interpreting for me and I'm looking out and there's this connection that's being made between my brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter. I don't look like them. I don't sound like them. But that's my family. Amen? That's my family. Yet, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Because that's what we all are everywhere that we've been sent. We're sojourners and exiles in the world, but not of the world. Amen? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, not if, but when, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why is the character of the apologist so important? The character of the apologist is important because we are sojourners and exiles. We don't belong here. It becomes obvious that we don't belong here to the degree that we represent our Lord and Master and Savior as his people who are exiles and sojourners in this foreign land. And what that always results in eventually is us being despised and rejected because Christ was despised and rejected. And down later in chapter 3, how does he end? 316. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, by the way, again, not if but when, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We're sojourners, we're exiles, we're in the world, we're not of the world. They watch us long enough, and even though we speak the, the same language, we don't speak the same language. Even though we may look the same, we don't look the same. 
We're outsiders, which means eventually we will be reviled. Eventually we will be despised. And eventually, because of the way that we respond to being despised and reviled, somebody's going to say, what's the reason for that hope that I see in you? By the way, that's when we get to go on offense. Amen? Back in our passage. Look at verse 10. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. You see our speech? Not just our character, but our speech. Now, this does not mean, for example, Again, let me be very clear about this. This does not mean that we can never be forceful in the things that we say. Again, I've often said we, we, we live in a time and in a culture where people believe the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice, and they don't believe the other 10. And anytime you say anything forceful or anytime you act in a way that is at all masculine, Amen. Amen. Right? You plant your feet, square your shoulders, lift up your chin and say something like you mean it. And all of a sudden, you're just not being very (laughs) Christ-like. You you mean I'm not leaving? Wait, hold time out. I'm not being like the Christ who flipped over the tables in the temple and ran people out with a whip or I'm not being like the Christ who's coming back with fire in his eyes and a sword on his thigh to wreck things. Which one am I not being like? (laughs) There is a time for ferocity. Amen? Amen? There is a time for it. Now, if I'm being ferocious because I'm defending me, myself, and I? No. No. But if it's the righteousness of God on the table, that's a different thing. If my goal is to vindicate God's righteousness, that's a different thing. And sometimes if I'm meeting force with force, that's a different thing. If I'm just being obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious, then I've missed this, right? Because now they're not being put to shame when they, revile, when they revile me. They're not. They're saying, yeah, that guy over there who's whatever, and people are like, yeah, I know. Instead of, Yeah, that guy over there who's a terrible person and who's a, eh, not my experience. I mean, that Jesus stuff I could do without, but, you know, I kind of wish I didn't like him so much. (laughs) 
Verse 12. Why? Why, why? why is this who and what the apologist ought to be? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If I engage in apologetics so that I can win arguments, so that I can destroy people, so that I can control people, so that I can be thought well of, I am, I am out of bounds. I'm outside of God's will and I'll be outside of God's protection. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Not through being able to give them sophisticated philosophical answers, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the apologist. That, that's what we're engaging in. This, this weakness of God that's stronger than men. So here we are. We're, we're these exiles. We're these sojourners. Strangers in a strange land. Easily identifiable. Because we're, we're a chosen race. We're, we're a royal priesthood. We're other. And because of that, eventually we're reviled. And we're despised. And persecuted. But in the midst of reviling us and despising us and persecuting us, questions are raised about why and how we endure what we endure. And we need to always be ready to give an answer when people ask us that. And our answer to that is Christ. It's because of Christ. It's because we belong to Christ. What you see in me that's so different. It's me belonging to Christ. It's Christ in me, the hope of glory. What you see in me that's so different is that I'm a new creature. Old things have passed away. New things have come. What you see in me that is different is that I've died with Christ. My life is hidden with Christ. That's what you see in me that's so different. And what you see in me when you despise me and when you revile me is not my strength. It's not my restraint. I don't have those things. What you see in me is Christ. The one who spoke the world into existence and yet was hated by the very things he created 
and nailed to a cross by them and for them. It makes no sense unless unless when you come to him in repentance and faith you get it. When your heart breaks over the things that break his you get it. When you'd rather win a soul than win an argument you get it. then you're an apologist. You're just one beggar telling other beggars where you found bread. Knowing what you believe, knowing why you believe it, and always being ready to communicate that to others in as effective and winsome a way as you possibly can for Christ's sake. Let's pray.